Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Romans chapter 11, verse 18. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So the church to which Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, right, the church in the city of Rome, was um, made up of different ethnicities. Primarily, there were the two large groups, the Greco-Italians and the Jews, who had alike received the gospel of Jesus. And scholars for the last hundred years um, have tried to been, gather their best understanding based on Roman historians and Jewish historians and the New, Test the New Testament evidence itself to try and figure out what exactly was the composition of of the church in Rome, and most scholars think it was a slight majority of Gentiles uh, and a substantial minority of Jews that made up the church, maybe like a 60-40 split. And while most of the letter to the Romans is addressed to the whole church, it's interesting that Paul takes a couple of sides to address each group individually according to its own specific angle uh, on the issues at hand and needs. So um, in chapter 2, Paul singles out just um, the Jews in the church, and he says, writes to them, if you call yourself a Jew, and he goes on to talk about how faith has always been primacy in Judaism, right? But you, you wouldn't, obviously, uh, you don't need, you're only talking to the Jews when you say that, right? A Gentile would never call themselves a Jew. And now, the reading we just heard from chapter 11, Paul begins by saying, okay, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. You could say just to you Gentiles. Manifestly, you know, one of the th ways we understand what's happening in, a, in the New Testament times is mirror reading, that when someone says, don't run into the street, you can assume that someone was running into the street. So by, what, by the very thing Paul is exhorting, we can understand that the Greco-Italians, Christians, um, they'd gotten a bit haughty, and they'd started to take on airs of superiority over their Jewish brothers, um, especially the Jews in Rome who had not believed in Jesus, who had maintained um, their Jewish religion as the extension of their Jewish ethnicity. Tracking with me so far? Right. Um, so what we see then is actually, you know, the church isn't, isn't even 30 years old by the time of the letter to the Romans, and some anti-Semitism has weaseled its way in um, to the minds of the Gentile Christians. I, can't, I think it's um, one of the great shames on church history is with what persistence anti-Semitism has reared its head at different areas and the church has fallen for it. I actually think that it must have a demonic origin that the Jews are so regularly in history singled out for um, antagonism. So it's raised its head in Rome and Paul nips it in the bud. He immediately offers his correction. Now, um, here in Alabama, there's only, I had to look this up, there's only 10,000 Jews in all of Alabama. So it might not seem like Romans chapter 11 is that pertinent, right? We don't have a lot of Jew-Gentile engagement here, and so um, it might not seem it to be that relevant, but one of the things I'm convinced of is when, if we pay attention to how God inspire, like talks about something and what he says, we can learn things, even from situations that are a bit remote from our immediate setting. I think that's the case here with Romans 11. So the first thing I actually want to do is situate Romans 11 in our context, which is a bit different than Paul's, because here we are uh, 
2,000 years later. But of course, us sitting on this side of the Holocaust, right? Where it's generally now, thankfully, agreed on all sides of the political spectrum that anti-Semitism is bad and that as Americans, we should distance ourselves from it. Thanks be to God that that's kind of an uh, established view. It wasn't always so in world history. Of course, there are regrettably some small fringe uh, Jew-hating groups. You, I'm sure you saw earlier in the year there was the they spray-painted swastikas on the synagogues in Huntsville. Did you see that in the news earlier in the year? So um, anti-Semitism is still alive. Um, indeed, the Anti-Defamation League has recorded more incidences last year than in, since they've been recording, since the 70s. You remember the shootings in California, the synagogue in Pittsburgh the year before. These aren't insignificant, but thankfully they're not mainstream. Um, one of the things that, as I was preparing this sermon, it struck me is that if I just talked about anti-Semitism, the end, I've experienced that folks who are persuaded politically slightly left think that that's a problem that the right has, and folks who are, persu who are persuaded on the right think that's a problem that the left has. So in case you didn't know that, both sides actually think the other side um, harbors anti-Semitism. And I actually think that, um, and when I say anti-Semitism, I don't actually mean the intent of malice towards Jews, but just words that have impacts that could that, that do hurt the lives of Jews. I'm convinced that the shoe fits a little bit on both um, on both sides. And I promise you, this is about Romans 11 and about our receiving it. So let me just let me just break this down a little bit because we come at this from different presuppositions. So both sides claim to be anti-Semitic. Um, and the left's claim rests on its sort of generalized, sort of um, being, be, generally being vocal against discrimination. But characteristically on the left, there's an opposition to the nation of Israel, existing geographically where it does. And on this, this is a, a question that I know is a hot button in American Christianity, the support of the nation of Israel. It's something I've wrestled with deeply for many years. Um, and it's something that I believe Christians can disagree on. I know godly, incredibly educated men engaged politically on the issues who are on different sides of this one. Some who are very supportive, some mildly supportive, some opposed to the nation of Israel as it exists today. I, I've become convinced that it is essential to the well-being of the Jewish people that they have that nation that's there. But I don't think it, that that's sort of this... Um, line that all Christians must tow, the way sometimes I think it's presented in the church. But I do think that the Jewish people fare better when there's a clear nation that is theirs. And I do think that to oppose what goes by the name as opposing Zionism is in outcomes to end up um, saying and doing things or suggesting things that will hurt Jewish lives in Israel. And that's where I think the right's critique of the left stands. On the other side, um, the right characteristically is strongly supportive of the nation of Israel, which I think is a win. I think that is anti-anti-Semitic. Um, but sometimes in discourse on the right, uh, characteristic kind of stereotypes and even slurs about Jewish people um, get trafficked without censure. 
And I know both sides aren't, don't internally censure, so that's not the problem. But nevertheless, and I think sometimes under words which imply a bit more than they admit, um, I think sometimes the word, even though globalism as an ideology is something that a Christian can critique, I feel like sometimes the word globalist gets thrown around, sometimes in ways um, which suggest a sort of harsh and stereotypical view of uh, Jewish people. And that that language gets picked up on by the fringe extremists and they co-opt it and, and use it for violence, like in California or Pittsburgh or even Huntsville. It wasn't violence in Huntsville, vandalism in Huntsville. So what I think is that um, neither the right nor the left has the corner on being anti-anti-Semitic. I think that all political angles of, of approach are insufficient. And I think that the Bible, uh, different than this, actually offers a comprehensive solution, as it were. A solution um, of how we really cannot be anti-Semitic. So first, Paul gives this larger, historically informed paradigm. He reminds Gentiles that Jews represent the foundation of God's workings to save mankind. That they are the root, right? You know, in Paul's day, everyone, whether you were in Rome or Israel, you basically kept olive trees in your yard. Olive oil was your soap, your fuel for your lights, you know, the cooking for your food. You used olive oil for everything. Um, it's not no accident that the Greeks invented gods of olives and olive oil because it was so necessary to life in around the Mediterranean. So he uses this image that would be familiar to all sides of, of, of olive trees, and it was a common practice to graft um, shoots into roots that were well established. So he's using this common picture. He's reminding that the Jewish race, race is the roots. And he says that Jews alive today are the descendants of and the representatives of the Jews whom God first revealed himself to, as the creator God revealed himself to Jews and gave his law. And it's into that root that through the ministry of the Spirit, through the ministry of the apostles, Gentiles, that umbrella category for all of us who aren't Jews, are able to be grafted in to the root. By the way, a little side note, I think the gospel that we heard today is one of the most tricky gospels to interpret. But the key, I think, is to see that it's on principle that Jesus holds back his ministry to a Gentile, this Canaanite woman, because until Christ himself had died, and I don't know how, why this works in kind of the cosmic structure of things, but it, it wasn't possible for Jews and Gentiles to come together in God until Christ had died. And I know that because the Bible says it. In Ephesians chapter 2, 14, we get this kind of deep cosmic insight. Jesus himself, this is Ephesians 2.14. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I think that's an image of his own body being, you know, immolated into as breaking down that wall of hostility. But Christ now you know, after this gospel reading now has died, the Spirit has come, and Gentiles can now be grafted into the root. Which what that means is Abraham isn't just the patriarch of Jewish people, he's our patriarch by being grafted in, right? And if we grasp this paradigm, it's clear that Gentiles in the church, us, we're doubly graced to be here, right? 
that our names are actually on the second guest list in the kingdom of heaven. That the first guest list has Jewish names on it. And the second, now we all get into the kingdom. There aren't first and second class citizens in the kingdom. But in terms of who's invited, the Bible says Christ came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Uh, there's actually two orders of guest lists. What that means is that when a Jew is baptized into Jesus Christ, they are a genetically related branch being brought back into the root. That's Paul's argument in Romans 11. And it's actually we Gentiles who are the foreigners, the outsiders, the wild olive shoots who are graciously brought in. Therefore, and this is the pastoral exhortation that Paul attaches to this paradigm, it would be ridiculous for Gentiles to have airs of superiority toward Jews. Even when, as it was in Paul's day, so it is now, even when most Jewish people reject Jesus as Messiah, nevertheless, they remain genetically descended from God, like the, the root, God's, the people that God is saving. And that's why Paul says they're like branches that have been broken off. Um, therefore, there's to be no arrogance among us Gentiles. Verse 18 that I began with. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, the, the Jewish branches. Because it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. I can't read that verse without thinking of that um, Russian comedian guy who always twists things around like, in Soviet Russia, this does this, you do this. And do you remember that, com that comedy trope from the 90s? No. Okay, no, it was kind of funny in the 90s. Um, if we receive Romans 11, um, anti-Semitism gets purged root and branch. It's rather than just partially solved by any political angling. I think, and this is characteristic of the Bible, that when we take it seriously, it actually rebuffs all people, which means it rebuffs all sides of political dialogue and sort of weaves a way through into the changing of hearts, the changing of lives, which then actually protects and honors Jewish lives. Um, and additionally, um, and this is kind of the last point I want to make from this passage, um, Paul implies here what he says explicitly in 1 Corinthians, that the way God deals with Jewish people reveals how God deals with his people. So it's a lesson to the church as well as to Jews. Because God's character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Paul, he always does this, right? There's, he's presented with some single pastoral problem that he solves, but then he kind of zooms out and takes it into kind of the next level of discipleship more generally. So he actually zooms out and puts the focus back onto our own working out of our salvation. He says in verse 21, okay, that's what's happened. If God did not spare the natural branches, right, that there are Jewish people, his beloved covenant people who nevertheless have rejected him and who he allows them to reject him, if he didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Did, that, did those words kind of catch you as, we, as you heard them? They caught me. Which I think is saying that if we Christians wander into and persist in willful unbelief, not just of Jesus, but of the, the apostolic faith which describes Jesus, um, with trembling, we should expect a similar judgment on ourselves as was described being given to the Jews in Jesus' time. And that's why Paul says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. I love that verse because it just pulls together that great biblical tension of God's character, right? 
He is kind, as we, I've preached about love the last few Sundays, and he's severe. And we don't usually hold those two things together, but he is. Right, note then the kindness and the severity of God. It's a great verse to have in memory. So thanks be to God for showing a special kindness to us Gentiles, grafting us in to the root in this age of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is that God would give all Christians, us, increase of holy fear, right? Fear that to sort of maintain walking on the narrow way um, and to be spared from arrogance in our salvation towards anybody, but especially towards Jewish brothers. And that we would continue to pray that the Jews would be grafted back into their natural root. Um, okay, also, lastly, I want to say too that um, we actually have this truth woven into our liturgy every Sunday. And I don't know if you've ever caught it before, but remember how we pray in the prayer of humble access? Um, and I'm sure you've got it by memory. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. That's a reference to Matthew 14 that I read. When the Canaanite woman says, even the dogs receive the, the crumbs from the master's table, right? Dogs meaning Gentiles in kind of the order of things. That we're actually remembering that we are doubly graced as Gentiles to participate in the Eucharist. Not, we're not only because as sinners we aren't worthy to participate in God's love, but also as Gentiles we weren't initially called um, to be participants in God's love. So... And when we pray the prayer of humble access, that's a chance. That's one I have a little kind of hook in my mind to remember. Oh yeah, I'm a Gentile, and I sometimes will throw out a quick prayer like, "Lord, save the, save your Jewish people." You know, it's a chance to remember this great historically informed paradigm that Paul presents to us, um, that God presents to us in His Word, in Romans chapter 11. Amen. <laughs>